guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Melissa. And I'm Nisha. And we are very excited to have former director of the Center for Human Values at Princeton University, Stephen Macedo. Professor Macedo is a Lawrence S. Rockefeller professor of politics, where he teaches and writes about political theory, ethics, American constitutionalism, and public policy. Welcome to the show, Professor Macedo. Great to be with you. We'd love to start by kind of talking about your background. You have had a very extensive career in academia, and we kind of would like to know how you decided to go that route, what sort of factors contributed to that, how you basically got where you are today. Yeah. Well, I, um, I've always been interested in politics and public policy questions, uh, in, in a way, moral questions in public life. But I was an economics major when I was an undergraduate, uh, and I actually started out in economics graduate school. Uh, I lasted one week. Uh, I, I went to economics graduate school wanting to do the history of economic thought, political economy. I was interested in Adam Smith and, and uh, public policy questions. And I was told that at the London School of Economics you could do that in economics grad school. And I was grossly misinformed. It was not, nothing but math and statistics, which I didn't want to do. So I, I dropped it and switched into a course called the history of political thought, which uh, that was still at that time Michael Oakeshott was the he was, a, he was emeritus, but he was still involved in that course, and, um, and I liked it, and I also then met some people at Oxford, and I was admitted to Balliol College to do political theory there, and it went well, so I decided, I'd always been interested in political theory, but I never thought you could make a living at it, uh, <laughs> and, uh, 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 but I sort of stumbled into it in that way, and uh, was very lucky that I did. So. Um, I was always being interested in these questions. It was what I wanted to talk about outside the classroom when I was an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to, uh, to do it for, for a living. Um, but uh, so, so my interests are very broad. And as you said, American constitutionalism, political theory, public policy, uh, and sort of values questions in public life. So how did you know you wanted to stay within academia specifically after your extensive education? Yeah, I, I did try something else for a year. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I uh, had done the two years in grad school in England, and uh, at that time, uh, Reagan had been elected president uh, fairly recently, and I was a Reagan conservative, Republican. Uh, I was a very enthusiastic Reaganite. Uh, and uh, so I decided to take a year off and work in Washington to try the alternative. Uh, you know, to, to, to being an academic. And so I applied for various uh, jobs and I was offered one uh, with Ron Paul, uh, who was a congressman from Texas at that point. I'd written my senior thesis on supply-side economics and uh, uh, so that helped. And I worked uh, for Ron Paul as a legislative assistant for nine months. Um, it was a very fun place to work. Uh, the uh, other people working in the office were very uh, intellectually engaged. Uh, we'd have debates in the office about things like, um, you know, when the congressman wasn't around, if someone bought a one-inch strip of land across the whole country, could they stop people from crossing? You know, or how high should your property rights go up? Should you be able to charge planes for flying over your land, you know, ideally? Um, anyway, sort of crazy principled arguments about uh, property rights and so on. So I, I enjoyed that very much, but I, um, I was never a hardcore libertarian. I'd say I was a classical liberal. still am in some ways. And uh, I enjoyed uh, working in Washington, but it, it made me, reinforced my feeling that I would like to be an academic uh, if possible. So going back to that time, it, you weren't you know, a hardcore libertarian, but it seems that you've had some sort of ideological shift from then to now, and we were wondering if you could talk, walk us through what kind of factors contributed to that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little hard to say. I, I'm still uh, kind of conservative in some ways. My recent book, which I'll be talking about tonight, is a defense of monogamous marriage. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I strongly believe in uh, uh, the justice of extending that to gay and lesbian couples, uh, for sure. Uh, but, but it is still a defense of monogamous marriage. In a way, it's, I think it's a conservative book because it's an incremental change that improves the institution, makes it more just, but, but, uh, uh, but, but is also a case for both marriage and monogamy as civil institutions. I mean, I, I did move to the left a bit. I think I took, once I started teaching, you know, social justice issues more uh, seriously. I, I think I started to recognize more in grad school um, you know, a after I was out of grad school, that um, a lot of people are held back by social circumstances beyond their control, and that uh, you know every child has the right to a good start in life, and that that's a responsibility of the political community. And um, so I was influenced. Um, I was always very interested in, and frankly, I was as I said, I was a classical liberal. I still think that there's obviously a lot to be said for free markets. I still think Adam Smith, John Locke, Alexis de Tocqueville, the Federalist. Papers and so on are great documents, so I still identify with all of those things. But I do think you know, John Rawls is a great political theorist, the most important since John Stuart Mill. And, and I do think we have strong social justice obligations with respect to one another. Uh, and I, I find that, um, that the, the Democratic Party is, is much more open to those ideas than the current Republican Party. So I did move a bit to the left, there's no question. And then as well, the, the Republican Party moved considerably to the right, uh, in my view. Um, I, I, um, once the Republicans took over the House of Representatives, uh, I, I was no longer um, uh, found them as interesting as they were when they were out of power. So uh, I remember the Clinton impeachment and, 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 uh, and thought that that was an unfortunate episode. So I, I did move a bit to the left, uh, for sure, though I'm still a kind of moderate uh, Democrat in a lot of ways. And, um, uh, uh, and I think the Republican Party has moved a bit to the right, without question. Um, um, yes. And how do you allow for those changes when you're constantly being asked for, you know, your take on the Constitution, or, you know, do people ever come back to you and say, like, well, you didn't think the same thing two years ago? Yeah, well, it's funny. I always, when it comes to constitutional interpretation, I've always had the view that uh, justices of the Supreme Court and other public officials, as well as citizens, uh, should take seriously the abstract principled commitments of the Constitution. So, in fact, I've always been uh, more of a Dworkinian, to be put it that way, when it comes to constitutional interpretation, even in my most conservative days. Uh, and in fact, the first thing I ever wrote really was for the Cato Institute, which was a, is a libertarian uh, think tank in Washington. But I, I wrote a, piece, a, a short book called uh, The New Right Versus the Constitution, which was a critique of the jurisprudence of original intent. I was asked to write it when I was still in grad school. Uh, and as it happened, it was just before Robert Bork was nominated to the Supreme Court. So uh, it was basically a critique of Bork, uh, and it was seen as a critique of Bork coming from the political right. So I actually got some press coverage at that point, and again later on with Clarence Thomas. But I was never attracted to originalism as an approach to constitutional interpretation. It, it seems to me that the framers wrote abstract commitments into the Constitution uh, self-consciously, and that it's the, the duty of, of subsequent interpreters to think about those abstract commitments and, and to make sense of them. The preamble to the Constitution says that documents about justice as well as the general welfare and the blessings of liberty. And it seems to me we should interpret the Constitution in light of our own best thinking about justice. Uh, not, not in a way to ignore the Constitution, but because in a way that's the command of the preamble. It says that's what the aim is, to, 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 uh, to pursue justice. So, so um, uh, so I've always been committed to um, 
what I, I'd say a principled, uh, morally principled reading of the Constitution, what's sometimes called the moral reading of the Constitution that's associated with Dworkin, <clears throat> but a number of other scholars as well. So I haven't changed on that. And, um, and, and my general views of constitutional interpretation have not shifted much. Even when I was writing for the Cato Institute, the main thing I thought was that um, the rights of personal property, home ownership, uh, the right to practice your job or profession, that those things deserve more constitutional protection than they were getting at the time. And I still think that. I, I don't particularly think that corporations need judicial protection, uh, and they never did. But I think personal property, along with other uh, personal liberties, um, uh, should, should be judicially protected. And the other thing that I was, even when I was in grad school, I wrote against Bowers versus Hardwick. And in that book for the Cato Institute, I very much argued that, uh, that the court should be extending greater protection uh, to gay and lesbian Americans on the grounds that um, it often suffered from, from prejudice and discrimination, and that the, the Bowers decision was a, was a constitutional embarrassment, which I think it's now subsequently regarded in hindsight. But so I, I, my views have remained fairly consistent Though, admittedly, um, when it comes to politics, I have, I have moved a bit to the left. Um, you mentioned that uh, some of your writings have been sort of influential in uh, Supreme Court justice nominations. And uh, I was kind of wondering what you think now. Obviously, there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, Justice Scalia passed away. And we were wondering if you had any thoughts on that, maybe ideas about who might be nominated and whether or not uh, that person will actually be confirmed. Yeah, uh, I, I don't have any special insight into the political process uh, at the moment around this. Uh, it does seem as though the Republicans are adamant that they won't give a serious hearing to anybody. I think, I think it's unfortunate because I think uh, Obama might be disposed at this juncture if they were to cooperate to nominate a moderate, uh, even a, you know, kind of a, a, more, a more moderate Republican. Um, names have been floated. So I, I don't see why um, you know, they shouldn't cooperate in that regard. Admittedly, they have quotations from Vice President Biden uh, 16 or 20 years ago uh, under similar circumstances um, uh, announcing that, uh, that, that the Senate shouldn't consider nominees during, a, during a, an election year. So there's, there's going to be the politics to this on both sides. Um, you know, I would say I think the court at the moment has a very strong right wing and it has a, a reasonably strong center. I, I, I do kind of miss <coughs> some of the more liberal justices um, uh, uh, Brennan and, uh, and Marshall and so on, but um, uh, I, think, I think Obama's appointments have been very good, uh, and um, uh, I, hope, <laughs> I hope that the next President Clinton <laughs> is able to, uh, to get a good nominee through the Senate, uh, but we'll have to see. Um, um, yeah, so I mean, continuing along with this uh, case, or with this focus on the Supreme Court, we were wondering if there are any cases that are pending before the Supreme Court that you think are really exciting or noteworthy that you'd like to talk about? Well, I mean, I, I don't teach con law and civil liberties these days. I haven't for a while, so I haven't followed that closely. Obviously, there's an abortion case mm -hmm. uh, in Texas that uh, has to do with regulations that have been imposed on abortion clinics. I think it's probably the most important abortion case since, since the Casey decision. It does look as though um, these regulations uh, have, uh, in a way, singled out the abortion procedure in a way that doesn't apply to colonoscopies and other things that they might similarly apply to. So um, uh, it looks to me like these regulations are uh, pretenses for limiting, uh, trying to curtail the access to abortion. So it seems to me that, that in principle they, they, they should probably run afoul of the standards that were announced in Casey, but we'll have to see. Um, I think there's an affirmative action case as well that's also hugely important. Um, I think the court, you know, on this sort of issue should defer 
to uh, to colleges and and uh, and other institutions, state institutions, and so on. Di you know, diversity in college um, admissions is an important value. It seems to be a legitimate value, and um, uh, I think the court should exercise a, a deference in this area um, and not um, not not uh, not strike these laws down. So there are a number of um, of important cases. There are bound to be some religious liberty uh, accommodation cases as well. But I guess the abortion and the the affirmative action of the two ones that come to mind at the moment. Um, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see what happens as there's a lot of movement around religious accommodations in the wake of the same-sex marriage decision. And I think some of those are, are hard cases and there's a, a good case for accommodating. So with respect to the, the photographer case, the Elaine photography case, I think if a, if a wedding photographer is almost involved in the wedding, um, uh, has to you know, be there for the wedding as part of almost the celebration of the wedding, and I think that in general, if a wedding photographer who's being asked to engage in a certain kind of artistic expression, you know, with respect to wedding photos, I can see a reason to carve out an exception there from the general non-discrimination rules in general, not just for same-sex weddings, but for, um, you know, religious weddings, perhaps, that, that um, an Orthodox Jewish wedding photographer might not want to uh, um, take pictures at a, at a Reformed Jewish wedding, perhaps, or something. I mean, it should be a general accommodation if you're going to have that. On the other hand, uh, the Hobby Lobby case, I've never understood why a, a limited liability corporation with, with thousands of employees, um, uh, why, why the owners of such a corporation, even if it's closely held, should be able to assert their religious liberty interests in the name uh, of this for-profit corporation, which, um, which after all is an artificial person established by law, and it doesn't seem to me to bear their religious uh, convictions. So, so the Hobby Lobby case, I would, I would not have, it turned out that there was actually a, an easy alternative with respect to uh, the contraception coverage uh, that was important there. But I think these religious liberty cases, are, they're always very difficult. Uh, they're often very difficult. And, um, and there are bound to be some interesting ones coming down. So one of the things you kind of mentioned is you used to teach constitutional law, yeah. and now you don't focus on that as much. And you have a large variety of topics within politics and government that you're interested in. I was wondering if you could tell us more about you know, what really drives your passion right now and how that's shifted as well. Yeah. Well, I only finished the marriage book, uh, you know, about a year ago. So I have to say I'm still interested in some aspects of that, in part because I, I kind of rushed to get it out. Uh, it came out just before the Supreme Court uh, decision, the Obergefell decision. Uh, and there are additional things I need to think about. Um, uh, so I'm still working on that a bit, including some of the principled questions um, having to do with liberty. Uh, interests and questions of plural marriage, uh, polygamous marriage, and so on. Um, but I've also gotten interested in um, some speech rights cases. I mean, I think like lots of people, I've been very interested in some of the controversies on college campuses uh, having to do with the inclusiveness of college campuses and, and linking those up with some of the older debates about hate speech on, on college campuses is rather different. And the thing that I've been slicing into recently has been the, the Charlie Hebdo cartoon controversy in France and also the, the prior Danish cartoon controversy. I think the, the reactions of um, Europeans and Americans to those have been rather different. So I've, I've been struck that many um, American liberals thought uh, that um, while the government shouldn't be restricting uh, speech, uh, including cartoons that some groups might find offensive, that there are strong reasons of self-restraint uh, having to do with civility, uh, especially in the context, though not only in the context, of a minority religious group that's also socially and economically marginalized. So I, I think um, 
uh, Europeans, especially in France but elsewhere in Europe, have not given enough weight to the importance of norms of respect for other people's religious beliefs, um, which register very strongly with Americans, I think, to a much greater extent, including American liberals, who, um, who, who often said in response to both the Danish and the French cartoon controversies, you know, that the Constitution, that those cartoons, excuse me, were rather sophomoric, uh, kind of gratuitously offensive, and while people have a right to publish them uh, on balance, they may not have been uh, good things to have published. So I think actually there's a strong place in our public culture for norms of civility and um, self-restraint that have to do with respecting other people and their religious beliefs. In part, I think, because it's America is a very religious country, very religiously pluralistic. We also have, <clears throat> excuse me, a strong uh, norms coming out of the civil rights movement, I think, and, and some of these, these norms of sensitivity can be overdone in the name of political correctness, but I think uh, there are a lot worse things than political correctness. And, um, and there are good reasons, I think, in a diverse country to be aware of one another's sensitivities. So, so I, I've been working a little bit on those kinds of issues and, and comparing the American and, and European reaction to those, those cartoons. And so I'll write at least a little bit on that. Um, that's that's um, something I've been interested in. I wanted to quickly go back. Uh, you mentioned the free speech issues on college campuses, and obviously that came up here at CNC. And I was hoping maybe you could give us a little preview of your take on that kind of in the same way you did about the cartoons. Yeah, I don't have a well-worked-out view on this, uh, and I, I think um, there's obviously a range of issues on college campuses. At Princeton, we've had a, a serious discussion, which I think has been good, about you know Woodrow Wilson and his mixed legacy, which I think people kind of knew but didn't really know. And so I think it's been very useful for that to be re-examined. I think it's been a very civil discussion. Um, there's been you know, the focus of it, in a way, has been uh, whether the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Affairs should be renamed. Um, and there are various proposals that have been uh, circulated, including adding a name, either Du Bois or someone else, uh, uh, to, to, to the name of the school. <clears throat> um, so those discussions are worth having. Uh, at Yale, obviously, having you know, John C. Calhoun's name on a residential college, uh, I think it was long overdue that that was changed. Um, he actually, uh, I'm not even sure, did he have a Yale connection? Maybe he, maybe he did. I, I can't recall. Uh, he probably did, but he, I think his name was only added to that in the 1940s. Um, uh, in any event, uh, uh, th I think these are important discussions to have, um, uh, uh, you know, f for sure. Um, and um, I think some people have been concerned that there's an excess of sensitivity in some of these matters. But, but I think for the most part, um, you know, students have been raising legitimate issues. Other questions have to do with the diversity of college faculties and so on, hiring, programming, and so on. And if somebody's been a faculty member for, for a while now, those issues are very hard. I've never been on any faculty where diversity considerations weren't taken very, very seriously. But if you look at the number of PhDs that are coming through, you know, in, in particular fields, often the pool would be very small. So it's, it's, it's not nearly as easy to diversify the faculty as one might hope, simply if you look at the number of PhDs in, in, in particular areas. Now, th those things can also be addressed. Um, where, where Princeton have, have various programs to try to encourage students from uh, 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 minority backgrounds and uh, economically disadvantaged backgrounds to so think about graduate school and to provide some, some support for that. But it's a slow process, and I think students are in college for four years, and not surprisingly and understandably, they want change sooner rather than later, and it does seem long overdue to not have a more diversified faculty, um, including by gender. Um, 
Uh, and I, again, it's, I, in my experience, these things are taken seriously and they are given weight. I think they're being given greater weight now. Um, but but uh, it, it's not as easy uh, in some respects as one might, have, as one might hope. Um, so there are some serious issues um, there. Uh, I think at Yale and I think here uh, and Princeton, this, the, the issue, sometimes the, the provocations are, are in a way surprising, the sensitivity about you know, Halloween costumes. I saw posters encouraging students to be thoughtful about that. And I thought the, I hadn't seen posters like that before, but I thought they were probably reasonable. Um, and um, so I, I think along some of these dimensions, you know, what's being urged is, is perfectly reasonable um, to think about uh, how the environment uh, is with respect to uh, the kind of diverse student bodies that we have now and, and making sure that everyone feels comfortable. A point that was made at Yale that I thought was very important is that, you know, the response in the past has often been, if someone says something you disagree with, you should argue with them. Kind of John Stuart Mill, you know, college is a debating society. And that's true. I mean, when it comes to people having different views about public policy and justice, the response is to debate and discuss. But it's also the case that students live on college campuses. It's their home. And they shouldn't have to be defending themselves all the time. Certainly when it comes to college administrators and so on, there's reasons for people to make sure that everyone feels comfortable you know, in the place that they live and secure. So, uh, so I think that's an important point that's been made in, in various places, having to do with the public environment. Uh, on college campuses. So we have a couple questions left here, and I was just curious, um, what has been like the most most rewarding part of your career? Um, is there a single moment, a single time? Well, I guess right now, <laughs> this, <laughs> this interview, podcast. this interview, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's all led up to this. No, no, this is this is great, but uh, let, let me. I mean, I, I do find teaching very rewarding. Uh, I will say this, I think teaching is very difficult. Uh, I started out being a terrible lecturer, and, and I'll <laughs> probably show this afternoon that I still am. But uh, uh, it's not easy. You know, you have to sort of learn the material, know the material, and then think about how to present it in not just a clear but an interesting way. And that takes a lot of work. Uh, uh, there are some people that are naturals at that, but for most people it takes a lot of work. But I, I find teaching very rewarding. I find the scholarship very rewarding too. I, I enjoyed working on the marriage book quite a lot. Now they're interesting issues. I think in a sense being an academic is a license for trying to think about what are the most difficult issues out there you know, that are interesting and, and to dig into them and, and to sort of work out what you think. So I didn't start off the marriage book having any opinion at all about polygamy to be honest with you. It just seemed a bit exotic and strange. Uh, but, uh, but I came to a decided view that, that um, it's, we were well off to have left it behind as a social institution for reasons that I'll explain. And on other topics too, it's, you know, you, you don't really know what you think about something until you dig into it, see what's to be said on both sides. And so that's just a great luxury to be able to, uh, to be paid, you know, mm -hmm. for kind of thinking about the issues that you think are really hard and important to think about and then working out what you think about them. Um, it's great. And then to have students that are interested in discussing those things with you is also fantastic. So I feel extremely lucky and in, in, the, in the classes that I've enjoyed the most I've thought that I should be paying the institution to allow me to teach <laughs> rather than the other way around. But I've never communicated that thought to my college administrators. That's a good idea. <laughs> I don't think I will. But uh, no, both the teaching side and the scholarship side are fantastic. It's, 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 it's a great honor to be able to come to a college campus like this. And, and be able to share your ideas and uh, to have some people that seem to be interested in them. Uh, maybe it's just out of politeness that they seem to be interested, 
But uh, no, it's, 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 a, it's a great luxury. I've, I've enjoyed my conversations here very much so far. I'd love to ask one more question about sure. your teaching experiences. Um, is there any moment that was kind of the most shocking to you or kind of the most, like a moment where you kind of stood back and you're like, wow, because it's funny or because it surprised you or because it, you know, or even disappointed you if you want to. Yeah. Um, That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, particular moments don't don't come to mind exactly. I can think of a few embarrassing ones. Again, my first experience teaching was giving five lectures on Thucydides. I had just finished my dissertation. I hadn't read Thucydides since I was a freshman in college. Uh, it was uh, it was an assignment I was given, and uh, it was just appallingly bad. Uh, the students were overly generous in their responses, but uh, I got to love teaching Thucydides and lecturing on Thucydides. But I, it certainly took a couple of years to to work up to that. Um, yeah, I just had, uh, I, lately I've been doing these various questions around public and private life, religious liberty and so on, and uh, organizing my classes around debates, was having the students debate the questions in the, in the seminars, and it's been great fun. Um, you know, it's, um, there, there are lots of interesting and important questions out there. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I, I, um, on the scholarship side, I did have debates and discussions around originalism and Robert Bork and sort of with people from the Justice Department and conservatives and so on. So it was, you know, very, very uh, in interesting. Um, but I've been very lucky. And uh, anyway, I'm delighted to uh, have the chance to uh, both discuss with you all and then with, with uh, some other students later on today. Absolutely. We actually do have one more question. Okay. And this is a question we ask everyone who comes on our show. And that question is, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give to college students in defining success for themselves? Yes. Well, it's definitely making a lot of money. <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm, only, I'm only kidding. <laughs> cut them off. Cut them off. No, uh, no. Obviously, you know, finding something that you really want to do, that really excites you, that you feel is interesting and important in doing it. And also, of course, on the personal side, finding someone to share your life with or some some several people I don't want to beg the the, the plural marriage question I guess just yet but uh, and and uh, and so that having you know b both having a, 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 a successful family life but in terms of career I think finding something that you're really passionate about you know really so, something that you, that you would want to do you know even if they weren't paying you for it if you didn't make a, if you didn't need to make a living what would you really want to do and if you can make a living doing that, then then I think that's um, so that you so that you're not working just to just to keep body and soul together, but that it's something that really excites you and uh, that, that calls upon all of your talents. That's that's what I would say. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. Thank you so much, Professor Macedo, for coming on the show with us, and to all of the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry. Thank you. Mm -hmm.